HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 or 1-ish on uh, the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in, where's Roberta's Pizzeria, Anastasia? Bushwick. Bushwick where? Brooklyn. Where? Brooklyn. Brooklyn! Morning, Anastasia. Good morning. How you doing? It's not morning. Somewhere it is. Also, we've been speaking since like 7.45. Yeah, but do people who are listening to this know that? No, they're listening to it at like midnight somewhere in, uh, somewhere else. They don't know what you've been doing. They don't know your life. This is a con- constant radio mistake you I make. feel like they like knowing <clears throat> about our life. And yes, don't... but with context. Like, like, like well, imagine I, this. Well, Nostasis. I thought imagine maybe this. you'd imagine want this. to talk about this interview. I mean, imagine this. That's fine. Imagine this. Yeah, I mean, we could bring it up that way. Instead of the, oh, my God, can you believe what happened earlier? Oh, and that's all we say. No, because when <clears> I say that, then you're prompted to say, well, we've been up since that early because we've been talking about this interview, which you should all know and like. Pronou- how, do you, how do you pronounce uh, the way your, your man Trump says it? I don't know. China oh. on the phone with China. Yeah, in fact, that is true. Uh, we did a after work their time before our work. See that when you're when you're when you're building something that's twelve hours time zone away, you have to kind of arrange your calls either <clears throat> like early in the morning or like late at night. There's no, I guess that's not true. They could arrange it so it's early in the morning or late at night for them. Yeah. Instead, we organize it so it's either early in the morning or we late night like for us. We like it better late at night. <clears throat> anyway, this is, again, people don't care. But we are working on the centrifuge. I had a tweet in earlier asking for updates, et cetera, et cetera. The updates are that uh, we – look, we've had a working prototype <clears throat> for some months now. But we're not going to officially release anything until – or give a date until we are sure that – we have the future production kinks pretty ironed out. Right, Nastasia? Mm-hmm. But we are, we're still planning on doing a pre-order. It's still going to be under $1,000. You will get a, a pre-order discount. That's still our plan. And we hope to have it on pre-order somewhere between three and five months before the actual delivery date. And we might have a tiered uh, early bird system where the early, early birds get it for less than the later early birds, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Isn't that our current plan? 
Okay. <clears throat> or something like this. Something similar to that. We're not committing early to anything. Early bird, definitely. Yeah, whether there's levels of early bird, we don't know. But the issue is, is we're going to go on uh, pre-sales, and you're going to get a discount because you're buying it before it comes out. And what that's going to do is there's a substantial amount of tooling that we need to make to, to get it made, and <clears throat> we don't have the cash to front it. So the pre-orders are basically going to go towards the tooling to get it produced. As for the specs, the specs are going to be that it is um, – it's going to hold uh, f- 500 milliliters uh, at a time uh, of, of liquid or oil or whatever, but it's going to have the ability with a built-in pump to pump liquid through the rotor such that you can do more than 500 milliliters at a time. So the most I've ever done, and it depends on the solids, content, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but the most I've ever done in one shot is five gallons. Uh, <clears throat> but obviously that has, you know, not that many solids in it. I did five gallons of uh, cider. I filtered five gallons of cider with it. Anyway, we're pretty excited about it. it the whole thing is going to be s- smaller. Uh, well, it's about a little bit bigger than a Cuisinart, wouldn't you say, Nastasia? Food processor, yeah. Yeah, a little bit bigger than a Cuisinart food processor. Much smaller than like a KitchenAid mixer, right? <clears throat> Easily fits under counter. Uh, easy to lift around, move around, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You buy them like potato chips. You're not even going to want one. You're going to want two. You're going to want three. Am I right, Nastasia? Mm-hmm. Oh, our goal is to put in anybody. They ask us, my partners, they ask us, how do you know how many people are going to buy it? I said, well, <clears throat> this is how many modernist cuisines sold. We had the number a while ago, but I don't know what it is now. Uh, and we figure if someone's willing to shell out $500 for a book, a lot of these people don't already have the centrifuge. They're going to be willing to shell out less than, less than, we don't know what the final number is going to be, but less than a thousand bucks, hopefully as low as we can go, right? And so we're going to price it as low as we can, but uh, less than a thousand bucks to be able to do some of those tricks. And we can do most of the tricks uh, that you can do for modernist cuisine. We've tested pea butter, for instance, all these kinds of things. The recipes are different because, and I'll go more into depth later, but uh, I have to rewrite some of my recipes to get them to work in a smaller centrifuge. But that's part of the work that I've been doing is uh, figuring it out. And if anyone really cares, they can ask me to do a, an ABCs of centrifugation on air later in terms of the actual uh, science and math behind it. But well, I, don't, I don't think that many people that care. blog post. <clears throat> no, but I never really talked about... Uh, I mean, there's a, there's, a, a, there's a number of factors in, in a centrifuge. We run into the same problems that people run into with... Uh, with uh, things like induction burners, right? They compare watts of an induction burner with BTUs in a gas stove, and nobody really knows how to compare them. So comparing, for instance, something that acts more like a fixed-angle centrifuge versus a swinging bucket. The two main kinds of centrifuge that people deal are called <coughs> fixed-angle. Obviously what that means is that they, the liquids are held at a fixed angle in the rotor uh, as it spins, and the other kind is called swinging bucket, where the, the products are in buckets that... As you might guess, swing out when you open it, uh, when you turn it on, rather, and that's, and that's how they work. Uh, they have the two different kinds of rotors have different characteristics, primarily based on uh, the fact that having an angle helps with certain kinds of uh, pelleting, i.e. getting solids to deposit and stay solid at the bottom of a rotor. And also, fixed-angle rotors definitely, uh, uh, usually, the uh, cloudy bits have a shorter distance to travel before they hit the bottom of the tube. So <laughs> fixed angle rotors act differently from swinging bucket rotors, but usually swinging bucket rotors have a much larger capacity than a fixed angle rotor, albeit at a slower RPM. So this kind of, this centrifuge kind of uh, tries to bridge the gap between those two, so it works, uh, it works at a considerably lower G-force than the, uh, than the equivalent swinging bucket would. Also, uh, you know, the, the centrifuge, like how well something, a centrifuge separates solids out is based on a, a, a variety of factors that are um, inherent in the product itself. So the, the viscosity, which we work on with uh, uh, like enzymes like Pectinex Ultra SPL, but also out in the speed of the rotor, which is something I can't change too much. Uh, but the, the other and the diameter, obviously they work in tandem because that's where the force comes from. But the, the, the big one, the important one, that you get to manipulate is particle size. So the um, <clears throat> the the speed at which you set the sediment stuff out goes linearly as the force is increased. It goes uh, linearly as the viscosity decreases, but it goes uh, by uh, by the square 
of the particle size. So you, what you really wanted, and also the density difference between the solids and the, and, and the liquids. But so, so a lot of my recipes to get the smaller centrifuge to work like a big guy it has to do with increasing the particle size. So I already went through and went through it. If anyone didn't understand that, which I'm sure is 100% of people because I wasn't very clear, then you can ask me to explain it later at a later date. Be like, what the hell did that guy say about particle size? Like that, <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of the recipes that I use in uh, liquid intelligence for things like lime juice, to centrifuge lime juice out, uh, lime juice is more, more difficult to centrifuge than other things, because the enzymes don't fully break everything down because of the extreme acidity in lime juice. And the way that I make that work in a centrifuge, regular, you know, the, the benchtop three-liter centrifuges that I use at the bar, is uh, wine-finding agents. And what those wine-finding agents do is they, is they make the particles agglomerate together. They become bigger. As those particles become bigger, it becomes, as I said, uh, you know, by the square, easier to filter them out or smash them to the bottom of the... Uh, centrifuge buckets. And so uh, I do that trick with this centrifuge, and I can centrifuge basically anything so far. You know, a few things aren't as good as the big guy, but pretty much the results have been good, right, Stas? Yeah. It's just a matter of making sure they're consistent so that when it shows up at your house or at your bar, you are safe and happy, right? Those are the two main things we want you to be in that order. Safe, happy. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Anyways, so... We'll give you updates as, as we know them, but it, like if it doesn't go on we, – I mean, look, we're still hoping to deliver it this calendar, if not early next calendar, but I don't want to promise anything. But if we don't pre-order by the end of this year, I think we're in some serious trouble anyway, so it's expect true. that to happen. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Is your sister, by the way, still on dump meals or mm-hmm. no? Did she do any? I haven't asked her, but she said she's going to keep on, keep it on. Because we got some, we she got some, every other week she'll call Every in. other week we call in, so we yeah. didn't frighten her away. Did, did you explain to her that I, I realized that she didn't write the dump meals, and therefore she shouldn't feel bad about me insulting the dump meals? Yes. We had a caller, we had a, a, a question in about the dump meals. Maybe I'll hit that one first, even though we're, we're way behind. Oh, I, another thing. Remind me after we come out of break, mozzarella. All right. You cook anything interesting, by the way, over the week? No. No? Mm-mm. What did you do this? Oh, you went to a wedding. How was the food at the wedding? Good. Come on, really? Really good. Good for a wedding or good? Just because they had like a whole pig and a raw bar. They went all out. Oh, how's the whole pig? Good. Good. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to look at you. See, I, see I, what I'm doing for you people is I'm reading Nastasia's face, and I actually saw that she enjoyed it. How was the skin? Was it chewy or crunchy? Crunchy. Really? Mm-hmm. I love a crunchy skin. I love a crunchy skin. How, how big was the pig? Not like that big. Oh, how many people at the wedding? Three? What is she doing? No, that was just the appetizer hour. Oh, oh. She, she's showing a pig that's like maybe two feet long. And anyone there who's cooked a pig knows that until the pigs get like longer than that, it's all like bones anyway. There's these skinny little mothers that, well, you know, pigs, baby pigs, and that there's not a lot of meat on them, right? Right. Good news is, is that they, they're fairly, uh, I don't think the little guys dry out as easily, right? So it wasn't as dry? No. A lot of fat coming out of the skin. Did you yeah. eat the ear? No. Who 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 at the wedding? Nope. There's always one. Who nobody, at the wedding? Nobody. Come on. Dave, it was like one part of like 16 pieces at a happy at the cocktail. There was no one like me there who walked up, no. ripped off the ear, and started eating no. it. No. No. Yeah, you know what? I've said this before, Anastasia. You better get yourself some new friends. I know. You need new friends. Uh, anyway, let me find this. Uh, let me find this thing. We had. Judy from Malden writes in. <clears throat> This is regarding dunk meals. Couldn't help but pause to jot down a note while listening to you shout down dunk meals. It is true. I got mighty angry over the, uh, over the dunk meals. I mm-hmm. did. Uh, you don't have to trust my opinion, though, since I don't mind wraps. Ooh. She goes on to say, yes, it's essentially edible cardboard, but I can't help myself if I don't want all the bulk of the bread. Here, here's key. This is why I know I can trust her. I may be a garbage individual. <laughs> But I'll call a wrap a sandwich. Now, you see, I have infinite respect for someone who comes out, because I say it to myself all the time. I may be a garbage individual, but props. Mm-hmm. Props. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. Major respect. I got a lot of love from Malden right now. Uh, I know you guys feel that maybe America's test, test Kitchen, which is, you know, you know America's Test Kitchen, affiliate, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, can be a little tone deaf at times, and it's true, but I've spent seven years reading cookbooks cover to cover and cooking mostly dishes that make sense 
when only one person is eating 98% of the time uh, and you have no access to outdoor cooking. So those are the things. Cooking, cooking for yourself a lot of the time and no access to the outdoors. Okay? Okay. So I've cooked my way through America's Test Kitchen Slow Cooker Cookbook, which I get you is their answer to dump meals. And certainly not all the dishes are winners, but some dishes, like shredded barbecue chicken, that is literally chicken and a slightly, slightly doctored, uh, uh, but some dishes like a shredded barbecue chicken that is literally chicken and slightly doctored with uh, uh, barbecue sauce, talk about a dump meal. Uh, but in other words, like she's saying, some, a lot of them aren't winners. There's a lot of them that she's saying, I guess, blow. But... Uh, I kind of really want to send you guys a copy because she said something interesting. Uh, uh, the mailing address, which we'll send, Stasi, you can send her the mailing address. Okay. Uh, I'm sure uh, Dave will do a look inside on Amazon. I didn't get a chance this morning because, as I said, normally the time when I would be looking inside that for you to make comments, Nastasi and I were talking to uh, the factory in China. Uh, anyway, um, I'm sure Dave will do a look inside, but here's uh, another important uh, paragraph. The first lesson was that most slow cooker recipes are mediocre at best. Best because most of the time one cannot simply dump a bunch of ingredients into a slow cooker and walk away. True. Obviously. That's why I was yelling at your sister about not browning the meat before him because that's garbage. Uh, one needs to develop flavor using a host of mostly new and interesting techniques that are contained in the book. So apparently America's Test Kitchen has a bunch of new techniques that allow you to just dump a bunch of crap into the slow cooker and, and uh, get a good result. Um, microwave spices first and aromatics, tomato paste, etc., etc. Uh, par cooking hearty vegetables in a microwave, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so anyway, so we'll take a look at it. Um, and, 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 you know, and it says, obviously, soy sauce and tomato paste were secret weapons for building flavor, as I yelled at your sister for the teriyaki sauce. But we'll try it. We'll try it. Uh, so if you send us that, uh, Judy, we'll take a look at it. And see it, right? Yep. I like a response. And next week, we will have uh, Nastasia's sister, the correspondent, coming in with her dump meal. No, she's going to call in again. That's what I meant. Yeah, call, okay. in. call in with her dump meal. And hopefully, Nastasia, you can warn her a little bit beforehand. I think she knows now. Uh, like that I'm going to have some violent reactions yes towards some of the stuff yes I know last week we covered the uh, Shai's question on uh, Burmese tofu right the chickpea polenta I, I thought we got to nothing I thought we covered it oh uh, okay uh, I wanted to call uh, remember I wanted to call Francis Lamb but I couldn't get in touch with him well that was two like, weeks but we talked about it right I think that was when I was driving yeah you talked about it yeah, All right. we talked about it so anyway, so if Shai, if I didn't get to your question on the uh, on the uh, Burmese tofu, which is essentially not tofu, it's essentially a chickpea polenta, right? And again, I've never tried it, but there's also Italian variants of chickpea uh, polenta it's called panella. Uh, <clears throat> I haven't tried those either, either, but I, I'm sure it works. But it's definitely not a tofu style thing. It's much more like a polenta, but it sounds delicious. I've never had it. Uh, you also had a question on um, using molds that I'm not sure to to make tofu ripen like cheese. And uh, usually the cheeses that are uh, the molds that are used for uh, fermented tofus aren't classic Western cheese molds, but they have run tests uh, with like penicillin Roqueforti, but they've uh, bolstered. It's, the problem is, is that a lot of those flavors um, in cheeses are uh, fat breakdown products. Uh, so in general, they have to dope the tofu with fats first, and sometimes they do with milk solids as well, which kind of defeats the purpose, but they'll dope the tofu with fat such that um, the molds can uh, make similar uh, fat, uh, oxid- fat fat breakdown, um, you know, lipase-style flavors that you would get from cheese. But it has been tested, I think, in the 70s. Though. I don't know anyone that does uh, commercial stuff. Uh, Shirtleaf uh, in his uh, and his his wife, who I can never pronounce her name, they have all the soy books. And if you look online, they have an exhaustive uh, search of the literature, bibliography on um, cheeses, uh, a tofu uh, inoculated with different uh, molds. So I go check on that. And, and uh, Shai, if I didn't get to your actual question uh, accurately, just send back again. I know it's taken forever. I feel bad about it. I feel bad about it. Right, Anastasia? I mean, we've had yeah. a bunch of weeks where we've had a bunch of crap going on, Yep. Right? Chris, did I get to Chris's Gravlox question? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, called in a long time ago. I have made Gravlox, secured uh, Scandinavian salmon a few times before, but have now been asked to make it for my sister's wedding, which hopefully didn't already happen. You know, otherwise we're host. Uh, I am concerned that I am producing something that is safe to eat and would like to know about the principles which make it safe to eat. The procedure for curing fish is to prepare a mixture of salt, sugar, black pepper, and dill. Sources vary quite a bit in the ratio of these ingredients and also in the ratio of curing mixture to the mass of fish being cured. 
Spread it over uh, longitudinally sliced salmon fillets with the skin on. Place the two fillets together and wrap in cling film and cure in the fridge for about 48 hours, uh, flipping every now and again. Which, by the way, I emailed Nils, and that's pretty much his recipe. I have Nils' recipe, Nils Norn, uh, uh, here. I'll, I'll give it to you before I continue. Uh, Nils uses 1.5 uh, sugar to 1 salt. Uh, if you use the kosher salt, blend it until it's fine. Otherwise, it doesn't melt properly. Uh, Nils mixes a salt and sugar mixture with chopped dill and black pepper. Even though white pepper is more traditional, Nils hates white pepper because of the moldy taste. Hates, hates, hates it, hates. Actually, I'm not a huge fan either. You like white pepper? Because it's moldy tasting, right? Mm-hmm. And do you care about seeing black pepper on your product? No. To me, it's a sign that there's black pepper there. Mm-hmm. I love black pepper. I hate white pepper. You know who loves white pepper? Wiley. Wiley Dufresne loves white pepper. He's not a huge fan of black pepper. You know what I think he is? Mm. Wrong. I think Trump would probably love white pepper. <laughs> Whoa, I'm going to tell Wiley you said that. You think Trump is a white pepper fan? That's not what I said. He said, I think. Thanks. What? He said he thinks. Thanks. See, that's very Trumpy in yourself. <laughs> you don't actually, like, I'm not ascribing to any opinion, but I've heard some people say <laughs> Trump likes white pepper. I get all my information from the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you're, and I, I, am I sensing some... There's a there's a racial overtone to the to the pepper argument. All of a sudden, I hadn't even never even never occurred to me. Although I guess it fits white being moldy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, even though white pepper is more traditional, I debone, scale the skin, and leave the uh, leave it on as the skin. And here's a key thing that Nil says: as the skin is really good to sear after it's cured. When you remove it before you slice it, but it's cured, he likes the, the seared cured skin. I rub the mixture and put the flesh sides together. Don't weigh it down. Just make sure to turn it after 24 hours or less if it is a smaller salmon. So anyway, so that's Nils's direct from Nils's uh, mind. And Nils's Gravlock's pretty damn good. I mean, if I had to say, give me some Swedish crap, I would go to Nils and say, Nils, can you cook me some Swedish crap? Wouldn't you do that in a mm-hmm, session? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't seen Nils in a while. Hopefully I'll see him soon. Um, okay. Uh, I also understand that there might be some risk of contracting parasites. That you hate. What's the worst word for parasite in your mind, Anastasia? I mean, you don't mind the word parasite. You just hate all the things associated with it. Worm. Mm-hmm. Spore. Mm-hmm. Like, what else? Anything? Cysts. Cysts. Mm. Uh, parasites, which can be mitigated by using fish that have been frozen to below a certain temperature for an extended period of time. Uh, probably not attainable in a home freezer. Actually, it is. The, the issue with a home freezer... <laughs> is that you just need to freeze it for an extended period of time. So, like, if you're a home freezer and you can measure it with a thermometer, but your home freezer probably easily gets down to about minus 20 Celsius, which is minus 4 Fahrenheit, and that's fine, but you have to leave the fish in that uh, for a long time. The problem with that also is that probably your fish has already been frozen and multiple freeze-thaw cycles really kind of beats up the texture of of the flesh. Um, I think your best bet is to uh, get stuff that you can guarantee is uh, previously frozen. I mean, the, the issues, um, <clears throat> there are definitely parasite issues uh, in salmon, and those parasites are not necessarily killed by the salting or by the refrigeration. Uh, they will be uh, killed by freezing. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, is that a lot of times if you talk to people in the store, they're like, what do you mean? It's never been frozen. It's fresh. And, like, they don't realize that you're like, come on, will you please just tell me this sucker's been frozen because then I don't have to worry about it. People still in their minds, they think that the never frozen is, like, a positive thing for fish, whereas a lot of fish, especially farmed, which is a lot of what your salmon's going to get unless you're getting the wild caught, uh, it's much better for them to freeze it properly at the source and ship it than to go through the, the whole uh, cold chain uh, unfrozen. You know what I mean? Like a lot of – all your sushi that you eat uh, supposedly has been frozen to kill parasites. And so freezing is not what it once was. Like very high-quality frozen fish is kind of the best – that you can get for some of these bigger things unless you're catching it, um, you know, right away, unless it's off of a day boat or something like that. But you're not, you're not getting, unless you live in Alaska or in uh, Washington, you're not getting salmon anywhere close to its source. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, so I would just buy stuff that's frozen ahead of time uh, so that you don't have to uh, worry about it. I would like to prepare and slice this in advance. How far in advance can I prepare it? And will slicing it in advance increase the risk that somebody might get sick from the fish? Yeah, of course. Anytime that you're taking something that's a whole muscle and cutting it, 
you are introducing the possibility of uh, adding bacteria. So if you get like any kind of contamination on it, uh, listeria or whatever, <clears throat> you're increasing the surface area on, on which it can grow. And, you know, the, the knife, if it's not fully sanitized, I mean, are you going to get someone sick? Like, maybe not, but, you know, um, yeah, you definitely increase the, increase the risk. Now, if you, I don't know if, if you want to cheat it and you can add something that will kill bacteria, like uh, nitrites or something like this, but I don't really, I don't know a lot about um, cured uh, fish safety, but definitely you're increasing the risk. It's still a small risk, right? Anyway. Yeah. Uh, also, do you have any values for the ratio of curing mixture to fish and the composition of the mixture? Anyway, I gave you Nils' stuff on that, but uh, I'm not sure how to answer on the safety. Uh, look, I would slice it. I would slice it um, pretty soon thereafter. Keep it really cold. You know, keep everything really cold. Like, you know, sanitize your knife. It's probably not going to be a problem. But yeah, anytime you're doing something like that, you're increasing risks. And maybe someone in the chat room has something to say on that. Um, okay. Uh, should we take a you want to take a break yeah. come back with more cooking issues? Oh, let's take a break and come back with some more cooking issues hi this is Peter Kim the executive director of MOFAD the Museum of Food and Drink we're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold the host of cooking issues here on the Heritage Radio Network and we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing Flavor, Making It and Faking It. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami, and the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MOFAD Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. Peter Kim, huh? Peter Kim. Peter Kim. You know that the entire time he was talking about uh, talking about us and cooking issues, that he was uh, like making snide faces. He was just like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I can see his Disgust. face. I could see his face of disgust mm-hmm. as he mentioned cooking issues. I could just feel it. That's so Peter. Yeah, I know. So Peter. We gotta get his butt back in here so we can I asked him to come today. And I was too busy me, 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 me. Yeah. Working on the uh, on the next exhibition that we're gonna do. Which they're gonna do a Kickstarter later on uh, to make money for the next exhibition. Don't worry, Nastasi made her Kickstarter face. Mm. You're not involved. It's all right. Nastasia hates Kickstarters, which we can get. If anyone ever wants Nastasia to, to, if you want Nastasia to rant, like get her started on running. Unless Kickstarter I hate campaigns. you, then I'll tell you they're a good idea, which I did once. <laughs> if someone asks you, should you do one? You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's so fun. Sometimes, look, sometimes it's necessary. And first of all, there are some people who enjoy interacting with people. For them, maybe it would be good. For you, living nightmare. Mm-hmm. Some people may be okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, if you were going to do a Kickstarter and you didn't actually have a product you needed to deliver, if it was not actually a product... Yeah, if it's a non-profit. You know... I think it's better. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like... Whatever. Anyway. Rachel from Hong Kong wrote in, Hey, uh, Dave, Nastasia, and David in the booth, and any other special guests? No no other... No special guests today, because Peter apparently doesn't think that we're... <laughs> right. We're worthy. Right. We're worthy. Not even, uh, not even the chance to talk about MoFad and a free lunch is enough to entice him, <laughs> entice him in. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit late to the game and only found out about your podcast this January. Spent the last six months powering through the entire backlog. Yes, I'm one of those nut jobs. Wow. You know, I, I feel for anyone that you're friends with. You know what I mean? That's like a lot of screaming and ranting to yeah. wade your way through. Yeah. Uh, Bit gutted that I didn't quite make it uh, to wish Jackie Molecule's bon voyage, bon voyage, but now I'm taking comfort that we still get to hear him on the Heritage Radio outro for now. we got to get Jack to record some more outros. Someone just beat down the back wall. You hear that? Mm-hmm. Somebody beat, almost punched through the back wall, like Kool-Aid style. Did you call out for Kool-Aid? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Oh! Whoa, man. David, you are quick on the button today. That is some strong Kool-Aid oh yeah noise. Have my coffee. Yeah, sweet. Uh, what kind of coffee do you like? Black. But like, like, do you, are you an espresso man or an American cup of coffee man? Um, well, in summertime, I do cold brew. Um, mm-hmm. I like Americanos. Mm. 
I don't, like I, don't like, I don't like milk, really. Man, I, I like milk, but not in my coffee. Yeah, agreed. I, I like milk formed into cheese. Oh, which I was supposed to talk about later. Let's get to the question first. Oh, nice segue. Yeah, but I got to finish. I got to finish, Rachel. So I know how you feel about vacuum sealing chicken uh, for low temp cooks, but texture aside, because my theory is that especially the higher the vacuum, if it's cooked in a vacuum bag, it affects the texture of the chicken, <clears throat> makes it spongy, and, and gives it that, uh, you're more apt to have that feeling. I'll describe it this way, that when you bite into it, it's excessively juicy at the beginning, but then turns to fibrous pulp as you chew. You know what I'm talking about, Nastasia? Mm-hmm. You felt it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my feeling. Uh, but texture aside, assuming I've pulled a hard vacuum on a bag of chicken breasts and cooked it through to pasteurization time and temp, how long uh, will the cooked chicken uh, then keep in sealed bags refrigerated before spoilage occurs? Uh, I tend to batch cook, and I've had bags keep uh, almost two weeks uh, smelling and tasting okay uh, so far, but recently I had a batch smell off after six days. I reckon it's an anomaly. Uh, might have effed up the seal on that batch. Well, the question is, <clears throat> if you effed up the seal on that batch, the one that smelled off, like, did you get, uh, did the bags blow? In other words, did they inflate? So a lot of times, uh, if something's gone wrong, there's two things that can happen. You can just see that you have a loss of seal. Uh, this is especially, I forget to say, did you bone them? Did you bone them? I can't, I can't see. See, if, if you, if you don't, let's say you... Let's say you have chicken breasts. Now, this is before I get to your safety question. Let's say you have chicken breasts and the bone, there's still a bone attached to them. Now, if you suck a very, very hard vacuum, like, a, like, va- like, like wait till the machine gets down to its full vacuum and then allow it to suck for an additional 30 to 40 seconds, right? You'll evacuate most of the air, most of the air out of the bones. Uh, and then you'll, you know, you'll be able to get a good seal and you'll be able to uh, have the bag stay tight. However, if... Let's say that chicken was a little bit warmer <clears throat> than the rest of the chicken. Then it's never going to get down to the super low vacuum. You might not pull all the air out of the bones. And in that case, when you cook, air will seep out of the bones because bird bones are hollow, and you'll get a puffed bag, right? So that's one way you can get a puffed bag on a chicken. Uh, but let's assume that didn't happen, right? You can Sometimes you can get a pinhole leak, right? And usually if you look at it really closely, you'll see there's a little fold in the bag seal where it didn't seal right. Or the edge of the bag got too close to the edge of the bar, and sometimes you can get a little pinch or a crimp mark in, the, in where the sealer is towards the edge of the bags, and you'll notice you don't have a good seal. Or there'll be like a little piece of herb or something that cut across one of the bag sealing points, and you can see. And there you'll see you'll get some leakage in, and what you'll have is a not-tight bag. That usually won't give you a blown bag. A blown bag happens when there's bacterial growth in the bag, and... It literally inflates from uh, gas that's being produced. And if you get a blown bag on anything that you weren't specifically trying to get a blown bag on, so for instance, like if you're making sauerkraut, you're trying to grow lactic acid bacteria in an anaerobic environment. In that case, if the bag doesn't blow, it's not working properly, right? So uh, anytime you get a blown bag, something terribly um, wrong uh, has happened. Anyway. Uh, I reckon it's an anomaly. I might have messed up the seal on that batch, but I'm also curious as to what makes stuff go bad in the absence of air and any pathogens since it's been pasteurized. For reference, I tend to cook my chicken ble- uh, breasts in flattish 200-gram uh, bags, I guess portion 200 grams, at 62 degrees Celsius for about two to three hours. Uh, thanks in advance and for all your uh, time doing the show every week. It's been an awesome source of information. I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to listen to now that I've wiped out the bat lo- uh, backlog. Cheers, Rachel from Hong Kong. All right. So there's, there's a lot of stuff uh, uh, going on here. First of all, as regards the shelf life, I'll read. This is from the, the, um, the Minnesota. This is Minnesota's food code. I don't know why Minnesota. That's the first people that came online when I, when I popped it up, right? So it's the Minnesota food code requires the shelf life under refrigeration of products that are vacuum packaged in a retail store, right? So that would be like what you. So like be limited to 14 days. However, food manufacturing uh, places that are inspected by USDA – or state get 30 days or longer and the reason is is because they don't trust retail operations to have the levels of safety and quality on the products as they go as they go into the bag and they don't trust the uh, pasteurization procedures and the cold chain holding ability of a retail outlet to guarantee safety for 30 days or longer but if everything is done right Right then, they're like, "Oh yeah, thirty days, no problem." So you can keep stuff that long as long as you're cooking stuff properly and, and maintaining it. Now, as for 
bags that appear to have been pasteurized and still uh, still blow off and go bad. <clears throat> now, you're quite right. Most spoilage bacteria, especially things that stink and smell bad, do not grow in uh, anaerobic environments, i.e. they will not grow in a vacuum. And in fact, that is why uh, people are worried about the safety of vacuum-cooked products because typically uh, when things spoil – uh, in an aerobic environment, i.e. with oxygen, when they spoil in an aerobic environment, they smell terrible. And so you can use sliminess, like because it grows slime, you can take smell, and all these things indicate that bacteria have been growing on it and that it's no longer good nor safe to eat. The problem is, is that in a vacuum, that's not the case. So in a vacuum, you can get pathogens that grow, uh, they're particularly worried about things like botulism, listeria, uh, perfringens, these sorts of things uh, that can grow in the absence of producing a smell or sliminess and sometimes in the absence of producing a gas that would indicate that there has been growth at all. And that's why people are worried about the safety of vacuum-packed foods in general. Now, when things go wrong in a bag, usually it's due to improper pasteurization. And so uh, that can happen. And, and then you can get the growth if you don't kill all the vegetative cells. Typically in a pasteurizing procedure in 62 degrees Celsius for two to three hours in something that is fairly flat is more than enough to properly pasteurize um, a chicken breast. More than enough. Um, typically... Right. If you get blow off in the bag, you're you're getting something that can grow in an anaerobic environment that's not spore forming. So we're talking about uh, lactic acid bacteria. Most of the time, you're going to kill lactic acid bacteria. 100 percent of the time, if you pasteurize it, you're going to kill uh, the lactic acid bacteria, and they're not forming spores. So you shouldn't have that kind of a problem. Typically, when you do have that kind of a problem, I ascribe it usually either, as you say, to a leak where bacteria can get in or to a situation where you have like two or three bags touching each other. And in fact, the temperature on the inside of that bag didn't actually get up to where you think it should have fast enough. So sometimes that can incubate bacteria in the bag, in which case it probably tasted bad right when you took it out of the bath. Or... Um, it, it hasn't killed everything and it can grow later. Or you have like a knife jab and some bacteria have survived on the inside of the meat that somehow got there. It didn't pasteurize all the way through because you had layer on layer on layer and then uh, it grew over time. The other thing is, is that I, I have this uh, sneaking suspicion that in certain cases of this, there are other things going on. And so if you go to this book called Principles of Modified Atmosphere and Sous Vide uh, Product Packaging, edited by Jeffrey Farber and Karen Dodds, if the pH inside of the bag, and so this has happened enough that it, it warrants some, um, some thinking, at a pH greater than about 5.8, right, there are things that are like thermophilic and mesophilic that might be able to survive and can grow in uh, anaerobic things. For instance, uh, and this is just, you know, off the top of uh, Wikipedia and this book's head. I haven't researched it. Uh, Enterobacteria, uh, uh, Brachothrix, and Shewanella putrefactions, which is also known as Alteromonas putrefactions, and they can cause stink and grow in an anaerobic environment and may not be killed unless you really make sure it's pasteurized right. But I have a sense that that's kind of what's, ha what's happening. Um, obviously, if it smells bad, don't, uh, don't eat it, right? Does that make any damn sense? Anyway, Gus wrote in, uh, hey, my name is Gus. I'm a college student in Kentucky majoring in biology and chemistry. Uh, I absolutely love how scientific and detailed you guys get on the show. Uh, without my two years of biology and chemistry classes, I'm not sure I'd be able to understand half of what you guys are talking about, but that's what I love. In my spare time, I love to make uh, bean-to-bar chocolate. Nastasia hated making bean-to-bar chocolate. Do we make that? All the time, remember? We didn't just make the ketchup thing. We made a couple of batches first of regular bean chocolate. Remember grinding all of the cacao nibs, in, in, cacao in the uh, champions, and then all of that cocoa liquor I mess really everywhere? I don't remember that, no. It was drowned out by the other nonsense we had to do? <laughs> yeah, you didn't hate that as much as you hated, like, all of the nut butters. Yeah. In, in, the, no, I, in the Santa. The thing I hate was the kombu tests and... Clarifying grapefruit juice by hand. Yeah. Well, you said you're never going to do that again. Never. Never. In my spare time, I love to make bean-to-bar chocolate. I order the raw beans and then ferment, roast, winnow, grind, and finally conch them. I ground them by hand for a while in a mocha hete before recently upgrading to a countertop melangere. 
Uh, I usually end up with some pretty delicious results, and I enjoy the process. However, I'm pretty blind as far as the science uh, behind it all, like sugar and fat structure, tempering, blooming, etc., and would love to learn more. Do you know of any books or other literature that really dive deep into this? The nerdier, the better. I haven't had much luck finding anything, so any info would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Uh, keep up the great work. Gus. Okay. So back in the day when I used to order – when I used to Xerox all of the technical books out of the uh, science and business industry library in uh, here in New York City, the classic chocolate work was by uh, a fellow named Minifee, and it was just known as Minifee Chocolate. It's very industrially oriented, and it's also – it's been updated a couple of times, and it is, I think, still one of the industry standards, but it's A, extremely expensive, like, uh, like $150, $200, and B – is I think a little bit out of date. However, I'm sure they have it in the li- in your library at school for you to, to go look at. Um, it's not what I what I recommend. Um, the the kind of book that came out uh, I don't know what it was 10 15 years ago that everyone started um, buying that it's it's a couple of things. It's blessedly short. You can do an Amazon look inside of, and it's only 30 bucks. Is uh, the Science of Chocolate by uh, Stephen uh, Beckett. Uh, there's a paperback, there's a hardcover, and uh, one of them I forget is on on Amazon Prime for like thirty bucks, and it's decent. It's short and it's to the point. It gives you the science. It's still focused on um, on bigger operations, not necessarily on on kind of what you're doing. But I would get that, and then in terms of the actual, and that'll give you some of the science. But in terms of the actual, like putting your hands to recipes. I would go on any of the websites out there where people are doing their own kind of bean-to-bar stuff like uh, Chocolate Alchemy, which is who we used when we were originally getting the Santa. There's a lot of different melangeurs out there. I would say uh, in addition to the melanger, you'd be uh, you'd be good if you went and got yourself a champion juicer. That's still what I would use for the initial grind-out of the um, – of the uh, the you know the, co- the cacao uh, beans or nibs or whatever you're using to do it, but yeah, so I would get a hold of Champion, but yeah, get the Science of Chocolate Second Edition, um, and let me know what you think. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. I don't think there's anything better at that price point, that's for sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm assuming that you don't have infinite money to spend since you're a college student majoring in biology. Am I right, Sass? Right. I'm assuming. All right. Uh, Barry wrote in. This is kind of a hard question. I don't know what to answer. Maybe like take. I wanted to get McGee on this. But, you know, he's been in Spain, so I don't know. Barry writes in, rather than wait to see uh, if there is a show, uh, here's my question for the next show. How, uh, I guess it was a show a week where we didn't necessarily gonna have a show. I don't know. How does a chef create the taste sensation of individual flavors that meld into one? For example, if I make shrimp etouffee, it tastes like shrimp etouffee. But when, um, when a chef does it uh, on the initial bite, uh, which, when a chef does it, on the initial bite, one tastes the red pepper, then the celery, then the onion, followed by the tomato. As one chews, each uh, one of the clear individual flavors melts together uh, to taste like a shrimp et- etouffee. Uh, how, does this, how does this work? And secondly, how does a chef create an initial spicy flavor that passes and is followed by a different lingering spicy flavor later? Well, huh. How do you create things that meld? It's a complicated – that's a really complicated question. I don't really – it's in the, It's kind of hard. I've never really used to kind of do those kinds of things, um, you know, kind of naturally. One thing you can do, uh, Barry, is um, you include things that, that bridge. So, for instance, like if you need something to linger and you're going to add some acidity, you want – and you need to draw, for instance, the front of the palate towards the back of the palate – and you know something's missing, you can add an acid, like something like lime, that's going to pull. And so like a lot of spicier cuisine you see, and I think it's not just because that's where it grows, you'll see lime in it instead of lemon. And the reason is, is that lime's going to integrate across the flavor palette longer than um, lemon will because the malic acid has a longer trail out. So like when you're tasting something, a lot of times when things integrate, it's either because you've put something in with too high of a, of a high note, like a particular spice that just hits one note too hard, <clears throat> and you need to bring the rest of this stuff up to kind of beat that note down. Or a lot of times what happens is, is you'll have um, a, a drop down somewhere in the mid-palate of your eating. When I think about flavors, I tend to think about uh, the time progression of what goes on. In, in, in something and then try to figure out kind of where things um, 
drop out. And usually that's where you'll notice things don't meld well, like a lot of times in the, in the middle of a palate. And that's where, you know, that's why we tend to add a bunch of salt, which rounds out all the flavor. That's why we tend to hit everything with acid at the end because it doesn't just brighten, but it rounds everything out. But I don't really know how to answer your, your question in other words. I guess I need more thought on it. Need more thought about how to how to round it out. What do you think, Nastasia? Do you know what eggs at duvet is? Eggs in like in a duvet cover. It's when you fart under the comforter. <clears throat> what does that have to do with this? You just think about it. <laughs> Welcome to my life, <laughs> people. Welcome to my life. I'm trying to talk about how to make flavors meld together. She's like, you yeah, know what melts together? Farting under a comforter. <laughs> Etouffee. I know. It's like Etouffee. Etouffee. <laughs> I'm going to New Orleans, by the way, for Tales of the Cocktail. Speaking of uh, yeah. etouffee, harass them down there, everybody. Mm. I'll be there a, a blessedly short period of time. I'm going there from. I'll be there a Thursday night and Friday night. You know your cell phone number circulates somewhere online. Please, please. <laughs> I'm bringing the centrifuge with me, by the way. So for those of you that Tales of the Cocktail. I'm going to do a demo of it for the uh, CAP program, see, get some feedback from some, uh, some bartenders. <clears throat> Nastasia, <laughs> evil. You're just the evil person. You know what I'm saying? Yep. You just, like, you know, have to be mean to me for no, no reason. Well, one time I put my away message when I went on vacation and said, if you want to contact Dave, it was for the people that we work with. I yeah. forgot that the radio show people email me. Yeah. And then it, your number was there. Nastasia also put the like swipe credit card for the original Sears <laughs> yeah, all order number. I don't know how that happened. And people are calling me. me. They're like, "Who are you? Why did you charge my credit card?" I'm like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "What are you talking about?" They're like, "You're a thief." And a lot. I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And then remember, like people would be like, they, people would order a Sears all on a Kickstarter, right, or Shopstarter, and then they would forget. And they didn't know what Booker and Dax was. You know what I mean? It was they, usually like the wives of the men who bought. Why is it men? Why are you going sexist on this? No, because it was usually women that were like, what is this charge on my bill? Why does it got to be a And then you were like, well, did you check with your husband? I checked. The, I said, did you buy a gift for anyone? Right. And she's like, no. and Because I remember that one specifically in that chair. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I was like, Nastasia, how the hell did they get my personal number to call about credit card stuff? So weird. Yeah, they matched. I don't know. Yeah, and so so, you know, to get back at Nastasia, like the time she sent me on Spirit Airlines next to uh, you know a dog next to well a, a woman and her fake uh, service dog. You know what I mean? The uh, I gave them her number. I was like, you need to call Nastasia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. <clears throat> Mark calls in. This is a Burning Man question. I'm not going to be able to answer this question right now. I got to think on it. Okay, so go to mozzarella. No, I'm going to do it. I'm no. going to talk about it, and then someone else will have a suggestion, I hope. One big searing question. Searing question that's part of the joke here. Uh, I'd like to serve a thousand creme brulees at this year's Burning Man Festival in the Nevada desert, but what to serve these in? First of all, we got to ask Jordana. Jordana Ross. She's going to come on the show in three weeks, I think. One Burning and that'll Man? that'll be before Burning Man, because she's going to. Yeah, because... She served some sort of cocktail at the Burning Man last she year. She didn't use limes. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get into it. She came. We talked about how to do what we wanted to do. You insulted her. And then she, and then she did something else entirely, <laughs> which is fine. Just don't ask. You know what I mean? But anyway, but that's not my point. My point is, is that, is that uh, Mark, let me ask you this. Is the Burning Man crowd the creme brulee kind of crowd? That's the question. What do you think? I think no, but I don't know. Sure. Are you going to be able to chill these creme brulee? Anyway, whatever. Uh, the creme brulee is sorted. Some investigations led me to this product. Dr. Uh, Oetker, or Oetker, creme, Oetker. It's that German brand. They make the vanilla zucker as well. You know what I'm talking about, right? You mm-hmm. see it, doctor? Yeah. Uh, creme brulee mix. It's prefab. Just need milk and cream. Uh, foolproof and tastes okay, and it's cheap, which will come in handy since we're going to prepare this in an RV with a very limited kitchen. Uh, we also get to insult the French uh, kitchen at large. Now, by the way, I looked at the ingredient list for that sucker, and it's uh, starch and carrageenan and milk powder. So it should stay in the heat because the carrageenan should keep it set no matter what. It's not uh, gelatin-based so or anything like that, so the carrageenan um, should work. 
Um, okay. I can't work out how to make the ramekins, however. They must be edible since there's no waste at Burning Man, and we definitely don't want to bring pottery ramekins. Although, how Burning Man would that be to, like, literally, like, slip cast a thousand things and eat the creme brulee and just shatter it into the freaking desert and it becomes part of the earth? Part of the earth! Seems like it's very Burning Man, right? You know what I mean? Like, those little, like, freaking, like... Would you ever do Burning Man? Oh, no. What if you had no family? Would you ever do Burning Man? Uh, don't, don't don't people have to get naked? I don't believe no. in naked. No, no. I don't like except heat. on your funeral. That's I, what you want to be. I don't like I heat. Have that recorded. I don't like heat. I like, I like I, it gets cold at night, like super cold. I like that. I like cold at night. I like the desert. Well, yeah. I don't really like collaboration. You get to choose who you want to be with. I like to kind of like be left alone. You can do that too. Then why go to Burning Man? Can I be left? Can I just go camp there by myself? Mm-hmm. Not in Burning Man. But you really want to be all alone in the desert? Not all alone. Yeah. So you can like choose who to speak to. Isn't it like large petroleum fires? I, I don't know. I don't know. I've never been. <laughs> I've never been. Look, I look. I, I, I've had plenty of friends who have gone and said it's life changing. Although I'm not sure their life afterwards was better than their life beforehand. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've gone, I've known people who, like, it was life-changing in the sense that, like, they ended up breaking off their engagement and then, like, going to a downward spiral for five years. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think it's different for everybody. Kind of like LSD? Different for everybody? Yes. Like, some people, they spiral off, and some people, it, like, you know, leads to enlightenment. It can go either way. What did Jordana say? She loved it. She like, loved obviously, it. she's going to go again. Is her uh, boyfriend Daniel going? No. Did he go to the he first time? He can't even walk up a rock without crying. Like, Wow. <laughs> wow. Nastasia insulting our friends on air. Mm. All right. I can't work out how to make the ramekins. They must be edible since there's no waste at Burning Man and we don't want to bring pottery ramekins. I'm thinking of a caramel or cornetto slash cookie ramekin uh, alternative, but making these will be very labor intensive. And also they're going to get soggy, right? They're going to get soggy. Ramekins? A cookie ramekin. First oh. of all, think of all those freaking cookies. No. I think a super baller move would be to slip cast a whole crap ton of these things. Like, it's heavy, uh, though. Where is it coming from? Do it in Nevada. Then you have to bring a... The, what? The plaster mold? Yeah. I guess it would take a million years. And you wouldn't be able to fire them, so you'd get clay right. in your creme right. brulee. Right. Although, wouldn't it be hot enough to fire them? No. No, no, the no, 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 no. By the way, P.S., although you could build a giant fire outside of your RV and be firing the clay yeah. mannequins, that is super baller, <laughs> That man. is what you are supposed to be there for. That is so super baller. It's like slip casting in the desert is super yeah. easy. Here's why, right? You, you, got your, you got your slip mix, right, which is like a liquid, and then it's just these plaster, these two plaster um, uh, things. So you pour it in to the, to the ramekin. So you, let's say you have this big piece of plaster, that has the cup mold shaped in it. You ever done slip casting sauce? No. So what you do is, is you, you pour it in. You fill up the entire cup mixture, right? And you let it sit. Depends on how thick you want it. But like, dip, like the ones I used to do, you only had them let it. Can let you them, use the earth as the? Mold? I don't know. It depends if they have clay there. Mm-hmm. But you let it sit. The slip mix. You let it sit for like you know however long, like thirty minutes. The plaster absorbs the moisture from uh, the slip mixture and forms a leathery. Um, layer right next to the plaster you then dump the rest of the slip out and you have this thin perfectly hollow i used to make uh, vases this way for art for an art sculpture i was doing vases and uh and then you have this thing that you can then go fire and then you do it again you can do it again and 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 again you can keep making them and i made big like uh, like two and a half feet tall vases and in the course of a couple of days i made like 40 or 50 of them so if you're making little ramekins in like in like a master mold thing you can make a crap ton of them it just seems super baller to like make a kiln out in the desert, no, whatever. You're not going to do it. Like, <laughs> maybe you will. Maybe it just seems like super baller thing to do, or maybe get someone else to do that, or have your camp do it. Or- All right, but going back to a cookie, I think cookies a pain in the butt, and also in order for a cookie to work, it's going to have to be so thick that you're going to be hauling eight tons of cookie out there. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And they're going to break. What do you think about? I mean, you could do like a like a creme brulee tostada shell. No, that would hold anyway. 
You hate that idea? Also, the problem is, is that how you get the creme brulee wants to be cold, right? Are you going to chill it? But if you chill it in the ramekin that's edible, the ramekin that's edible is going to get all nasty, right? It's going to get all floppy and nasty because there's going to be a liquid contact. You get me? Mm-hmm. See the problem? Mm-hmm. Why does he want to do creme brulee? Eh, whatever. whatever. Anyway, that's not the point. But the point is the carrageenan. Like the ultimate would be if you could do if you could if you could set the the creme brulee in a tube, a tube. Who is that uh, Alaska senator? It's a series of tubes. Remember that? That's how he described the internet. Uh, and uh, set it in a tube and then slice it into discs and let them thaw in your ramekin. Then you could use almost anything because it wouldn't need to be around that long before you served it. It wouldn't get soggy, right? But the issue is is that I don't know if the carrageenan they're using, I didn't have time to look it up, is going to be freeze-thaw stable. But you got to run a test on that. Um, anyway. Oh, yeah, maybe unless we freeze the creme brulee in blocks, cut them up uh, in portions, and coat them. Yeah, but lots of work. By the way, I'll think on it a little more. Uh, they said best I could find were prefab waffle bowls. Not quite it, but will do. That's kind of expensive. I'll think on it some more. Maybe someone in the, uh, in the cooking issues land has uh, some theories. One thing I'll say, remember, creme brulee is one of the few things I recommend using a naked torch on, instead, especially for Burning Man. Naked torch and not a Searsol because... It just is. It's one of those things. But I'll, I'll think on that. I'll think on it some more. I thought you didn't believe in naked. Uh, I, only if, only for creme brulee do I believe in naked. Got uh, it. <clears throat> all right. So, uh, all right, quick one. Daniel writes in, question about pressure cookers. Uh, I'm not even going to get to talk. I made mozzarella uh, this week. And by the way, it's one of the – do you ever have anything in your life, Nastasia, that, like, you've had such a traumatic experience that you won't ever do it again? Uh, yeah, like ravioli. Right, yeah. So, like – 23 or 24 years ago, right? 23 years ago. I was like 22. And I was at my wife's apartment. I was still in college or just gotten out of college. She was in, she was, uh, you know, had her first job. There was no internet. And I wanted to make mozzarella. And I'll just say that it was a freaking catastrophe. Like a freaking catastrophe. There was no place to look it up. I was just what I could gather from books on how it was done. I didn't know how to make curds. I was not a professional. And my wife, for the past 23 years, has made fun of my mozzarella attempt 23 years ago so much that I have never tried it again, ever, until last night. And I have to say, success. But we'll talk more about it later. But yeah, she like she was like... She was like, you should leave that kind of stuff to the professionals. This was, you know, obviously I wasn't a food professional at the time. Uh, but you know what? Like, this weekend, I was like, I'm, tomatoes are going to grow. Where are the, my tomatoes are growing? There's no good mozzarella. I need to learn how to make mozzarella again. And plus, you know what? Damn it. I am a professional now. You have that cheese shop near you. In New York? No. In Connecticut. Cheese shop. Do they make mozzarella? Yeah. Is it good? Yeah. We, yeah. The mozzarella is good? There's a cheese shop. Yeah. Got a minute, Dave. I'll look it up. Okay. A minute. Daniel, I'm going to get your question in a minute. Question about pressure cookers. A good hundred episodes ago, a caller asked about what pressure cookers you would recommend uh, he buy and, and why. I'm having a hell of a time finding the episode. Thought you might answer it again. What stovetop pressure cooker would you recommend ignoring price? I think you've mentioned the Kuhn Recon model in the past. That's the only one I like that I've used uh, myself personally. How does that model compare to the Fissler VitaQuick? I hate the word VitaQuick because it implies that you're keeping vitamins inside in a pressure cooker, which is ho-ho-hokum, but uh, it looks like a really good unit. The Fissler VitaQuick looks like the Kuhn Recon in that it has a pressure uh, gauge that goes up and down and so allows you to um, gauge the pressure without it venting. And as you might know, in my tests, I've noticed that venting pressure cookers uh, tend to make stocks that don't uh, taste as good. That's been my experience backed up by many, many trials. Uh, so anyway, so the Fistler VitaQuick looks good. I don't have any personal experience with it. Uh, America's test cushion rates the Fistler quite a bit higher than the Kuhn Recon model. Again, I don't know. I've never used uh, the Fistler. Uh, are their assessments valid in your opinion? I also can't get a hold of their. Someone can send me their stuff. I don't have their password to their website. They claim the Kuhn Recon model had the most evaporative loss out of all the models they've tested. If that's the case, then they're not testing the Kuhn Recon right. The Kuhn Recon, if you overshoot the pressure uh, gauge, you'll get evaporative loss because it's telling you to turn down. But my Kuhn Recon, when it's operating properly, is dead silent, and there's no, uh, there's no venting out of it. 
so you say, have you found this to be true? No. I also, I looked up their thing. Uh, I, uh, I looked up their uh, test. They recommend the Fagor, and I hate, I don't, not hate, I didn't like the, the Fagor. And they made a classic error. I'm going to leave you with this, and we can talk more about it next time if you want more questions. They made a classic error that people with the Fagor pressure cooker make. The Fagor pressure cooker, when you close the, the lid and you turn on the heat and it starts building pressure, a little button goes poop and indicates that there is pressure in the unit. It does not indicate that you have reached your operating pressure. So if you use the Fagor model and think that that little yellow dot is an indication that you have reached 15 PSI on the inside of your pressure cooker, you are mistaken. The only way you can figure out whether you've actually reached that pressure is whether or not it's venting steam through the pressure regulator that's set to that pressure, right? Because the button doesn't know whether you're at 5 PSI or 15 PSI or what. It just knows that it's sealed and that you started building pressure. Classic mistake. Anyway, we can talk more about it next time on Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.